1: Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. Hey, just a word on the Bald Move Boys. They are covering For All Mankind. I can't recommend this show highly enough. It's on Apple TV, and of course, no one is better suited to cover that show than Jim and Aaron. I would highly recommend the Bald Move companion pod, which is called Hi Bob. It has become my new Friday ritual to catch the latest episode of For All Mankind and then immediately pop in the AirPods and give the dog a long walk while I listen to Jim and Aaron talk about the episode. So do a search for Hi Bob, Bald Move, wherever you search for podcasts. Without further ado, here is Professor of History and Gender Studies, Jan Doolittle Wilson.
2: And thank you for the delay. <laughs> it has been a wild morning around here. My uh, son is dissecting a crawfish at school <laughs> and forgot his gloves. And so, <laughs> of course, he told me at the last minute. So I had to rush over to his school, mm-hmm. get him gloves, come back. My daughter just got up about an hour ago. So it's, I'm hopefully things are calm now. Um, hopefully the dogs will not bark and <laughs> nobody will knock on the door.
1: <laughs> well, I think we're leading parallel lives.
2: <laughs> What's going um, on with you?
1: My son had surgery this morning.
2: Oh no. <laughs> so he I hope nothing serious. He was
1: being dissected. <laughs> oh. By a professional. Um he yeah, it's it, he needed to have his kneecap uh, sort of fastened in place with an Ooh. additional ligament. Uh, Did
2: he have an injury, or
1: he had an injury about a year ago? I don't know if you're you've, your kids are about my kids' age, so perhaps you're familiar with the phenomena of hitting the gritty. Do you know what hitting the gritty is?
2: I don't. <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> All right. Well, this is a this is a little dance, and it, there, it has very <laughs> various iterations, and it's sort of a, a very modest. Little shuffle, yeah. Uh, but my son took it to a new level, and he <laughs> he slipped and fell while hitting the gritty, and oh. destroyed his kneecap. So that was about a year ago, and so we've d- tried reha you know, uh, physical therapy and you know, all that business. And eventually, we just sort of decided this is not healing uh, correctly. Uh, so anyway, he went under the knife today. And he's on his way to Sonic now with my wife, oh. and they well, should be—they <laughs> should be returning I, soon.
2: I shouldn't be complaining about the crawfish. <laughs> that's a lot worse. <laughs> if you need—if we need to reschedule, Anthony, that's totally fine. Oh no!
1: Me. Oh no! He's uh, in good hands, and I—you know—that this all happened at like six a.m. this morning. So he's out of surgery, and he's on his way home, and everything should be. Fine and dandy. Well,
2: I will keep him in my thoughts. Hopefully, all will go <laughs> sure. well. And that's, yeah. I'm sure he's relieved it's over. And hopefully, the knee will be fine after this.
1: He told me, um, you know, he's 15, and this will tell you that maybe a little bit about his personality. He really wanted to go to fast food afterwards because he heard that when you're high, food tastes better. <laughs> and. <laughs> <laughs> So that might tell you a little bit of something about maybe his lack of experience, uh his yeah. relative innocence, but also not too innocent because clearly he's getting information on these streets of Dayton. So
2: <laughs> Sounds like something Zoe would say actually. Yep. <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway, anyway. So oh, I think gosh. he's I think he's fine. Um so this is the second part of our conversation about Tyrion's Apex. And uh, with me again is Jan Wilson. Thank you for joining me again, Jan.
2: Of course. Always happy to do so.
1: I'm going to jump right into my synopsis and then we can talk about the show. Okay. After seeing Marcella onto a ship bound for Dorne, Tyrion reflects on his sister's comings and goings with the kettlebacks he surmises that she aims to build a private army of sellswords. On his way back from the docks, an angry and hungry crowd is stirred by a series of unfortunate interactions with King Joffrey. The company of highborn folk and their guards are no match for the Flea Bottom mob. Some are killed, some are injured, all are humiliated. Later, according to Sir Bywater, Tyrion learns that matters are even worse than they seem an uprising is all but certain commoners and gold cloaks alike despise the lannisters and tyrion learns that he is worst loved of the lot so there, man there's a lot to talk about in this chapter
2: <laughs> oh this chapter's loaded uh,
1: completely i mean there's not there's not a lot of action And yet when Martin does decide that he's going to give you some action, it's kind of like, oh, no, (laughs) it's not like I expected it.
2: And, you know, what's interesting, too, though, if you compare and I know we'll probably do this later more deliberately. But when you compare this chapter to what happens in the show, most of what happens in the book happens kind of off page. It's just described after the fact. But yet in the show, it's so brutal. (laughs) I mean, it's it's just You're right there in the action, you know, of what's going on in the show. So I wonder, it's an interesting choice on Martin's part to kind of let us experience this Mm -hmm. kind of secondhand from what others are saying. I
1: really like that point. And I I just want to bring out that Mm -hmm. throughout this book, Tyrion's been the most repeated POV Mm-hmm. And so we kind of have seen his motives, and most of what he's done has made sense. And he's a really sympathetic character, so you want to root for him, right? Right. So we've seen him, like, in the first book, like, recruit the mountain clans, and we've seen his rise to the hand of the king, and we've seen his punishment of Pycelle, and we've seen his, you know, how he's sort of trying to cow Joffrey or at least sort of like contain Joffrey's worse impulses. And so we've seen all of those things and they all make sense from Tyrion's perspective. And yet you can see each of those things through the commoner's perspectives. Mm -hmm. And each of those things make Tyrion just seem monstrous. You're right. And it's probably through a lens, it's an interesting lens through like, he doesn't look the part of someone that you can trust. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just read this little bit. This is what. So toward the end of the chapter, Bywater says this. He says, "His grace is but a boy, but in the streets it is said that he has evil counselors. <laughs> the queen has never been known to be a friend of the commons, nor the Lord Varus is called. The, nor is Lord Verus called the Spider out of love, but is you they blame most." Your sister and the eunuch were here when times were better under King Robert, but you were not. They say that you filled the city with swaggering sellswords and unwashed savages, brutes who take what they want and follow no laws but their own. They say you exiled Janus Thunt because you found him too uh, bluff and honest for your liking. They say that you threw wise and gentle Pycelle into the dungeons when he dared raise his voice against you. Some even claim that you mean to seize the Iron Throne for your own. And he says, yes, and I'm a monster besides. And so each of these little bits of the plot that we've seen from Tyrion's perspective had made sense to us and probably engendered sympathy. And yet from the perspective of the commoners, every single bit of this can be construed as evil or cruel intentions.
2: And it's the first glimpse we've gotten of how the people feel about all of this, yeah. because yeah. they don't have a point of your chapter, right? We never That's really right. see things from their perspective. So you're right. We just have kind of followed along and rooted for Tyrion and um, agreed with the actions he's taken. And yet when you get to that paragraph, it kind of turned you around. Now, you, It turned you yeah. around to see a different perspective. And if you see it from the eyes of the commoners, Why wouldn't they be furious?
0: We're getting geared up for the sixth annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make.
2: here's one example I kept thinking of Tyrion thinks, you know, once again, we'll surround ourselves with, you know, this show of might because he knows the streets are restless. He knows the people are uh-huh. starving. So if we put all of these knights around us and we have this display of wealth and strength that will impress the people. Well, it impressed the people, but not the way he thought, right. It, it came off as very right. ostentatious. How dare you wrap yourselves in gold when we are starving. Right. So it's just this, this, This inability, right, to see things from that point of view—it's a—it's a a huge flaw and it's a huge mistake. And you can really see those flaws in this chapter. Yes,
1: yeah, and he's so worried about Stannis, and he's sort of keeping an eye on Renly and Rob, and he's worried that his sister might be hatching a plan against him and he's concerned about getting his chain made and he's feeling like he's 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 doing okay mm-hmm. and there's this huge massive peril right outside you know the the red keep
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's it's the people of king's landing who are sort of like the biggest and most problematic enemy that have been completely overlooked
2: right And he can't, he, he's so shocked when he hears this and Mm -hmm. you know, he certainly has a point when he says, you know, part of the reason they're directing their ire at me is because I am a monster to them, but it's part of a larger monstrosity. And I remember in an earlier chapter when he thinks to himself, look at this, this great thing I've done for the people. I've opened up more fishing lines, right? So he's, he has these little piecemeal approaches to, Mm. I'm trying to alleviate the hunger. That's just scratching the surface of the problem here and he really thinks that that is going to solve the problem. Open up a few fishing lines, have this show of strength, the people will be appeased. He really underestimates how deep this suffering is on their part, how angry they are. Um, every decision that they have made as a way of thinking about that larger picture, right? Thinking, how do we defeat Stannis? How did we all of these things have worked against the people of that very city? So the blockades and the tax, people coming to the city who are being taxed. Those are refugees, right? People who are who are trying to yeah. get away from the war coming into the city, and they're being taxed just to go through the gates. They're being and, taxed for that kind of protection.
1: Yeah. And Littlefinger said in the last chapter, go to the marketplace. You're more likely to be able to buy a lord than a chicken. Mm-hmm. It you says know, it so offhandedly. <laughs> n- yeah. There's so little food left. Yeah. And it kind of shows you, like, there's a difference between – a political problem when you're well-fed and a political problem when you're starving. Yes. People are willing to completely change allegiance. People are willing to become violent.
2: Yes. They call it king bread. King bread. Yeah.
1: That's right. King bread. Right? <laughs> we don't care about yeah. King
2: Joffrey. We care about bread. That's our king.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, Joffrey, I mean, we Joffrey's to blame for a lot of this. Joffrey he went to the gates and like, like shot people with his crossbow and, Ugh. uh, and then in this chapter they see him and someone throws a piece of, uh, what do they call the A piece of dung or something. Right. And he, you just get this sense that it's just full on in his face yeah, and it just enrages him and according uh, you know from Tyrion's perspective if Joffrey would have just rode directly to the gate and taken it this whole thing could have been averted right but what he decides to do is he just he's he sends out his dog you know right. sends out the hound to track down whoever threw the shit and this enrages the crowd. And then this really, really sort of lights the match.
2: What's also interesting about that part you just referred to. Joffrey thinks once again, money will solve the problem. And so he says a hundred golden dragons to the man who gives them uh-huh. up thinking the crowd will respond to my money. Right. They'll give right. up anybody for money because that's how they operate. Right. That's how the crown kind of operates. They'll do anything for that. And yet the crowd, doesn't go for that at all, right? They are furious that he is going after one of their own. They're furious that he is so callous, right? To their suffering that he sent out the dog (laughs) and they just turn, right? That's the moment they turn. So what he thought would work doesn't work anymore. And I, you know, Tyrion had seen this buildup through previous chapters. He saw them boiling rats because they had no food. And so, you know, he, he keeps saying throughout the book, something's different. <laughs> the people have always been a little restless, but something's different this time. And it's just that that match in the powder keg.
1: So Tyrion reflects a little bit of Cersei's, I guess he, he's got bronze spine on Cersei, right? Mm-hmm. And he knows that she's been sneaking off to be with the kettlebacks. And he surmises that she is probably trying to use these swords to kind of create her own fighting force.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, am I reading that right? I think I think this is a good play by Cersei.
2: I I'd certainly think so, yes. It makes total sense because who really is protecting Cersei at this point? She knows Tyrion doesn't have her best interests at heart. She, of course, can't trust anyone on the small council. Um, And Jamie's gone. I think Jamie being gone is such a huge part of this. She always had Jamie. She knew that Jamie would give his life for her. Nobody else will. Um, She is surrounded by people who are loyal to her because she pays them or because Mm. they hold a certain office. They have no real loyalty to her. Jamie's the only one. And so I think it's smart to, to gather these forces around her and and try to have this kind of protection. And she also might be thinking about this, you know, offensively as well. Um, There's something to be said about, I'm going to have these forces in case I need to go after Tyrion or I need to, you know, go after my enemies, my political enemies.
1: So in the later books, Jamie is haunted by these men. Mm -hmm. He has this repeated, it's like he can't get the kettlebacks out of his mind. Right. And because the rumors are is that Cersei is sleeping with them. Right. You know, here Jamie is, he's like, you know, totally devoted to Cersei. And I think he views it as, okay, well, she's clearly unfaithful to me. I think that can be true. I think it could also be true that Cersei is using her body for political power yeah because it's one of the only ways that she can exert power exactly, and so if she can sort of in ingratiate herself to the kettlebacks that allows her to amass this fighting force right, I don't know if that's the way I should read it, but i because I, I think I've always sort of viewed this as a completely villainous act of disloyalty on her part mm. But I think if we just look at the last chapter we covered together and this chapter, she's feeling more more vulnerable than she's ever felt. Right. And I think she's decided I'm going to have to use my body as currency to, to if I'm going to survive this.
2: And she's Which not able to tragic. call out. She's not able to call out the banners anymore. I'm remembering kind of a similar situation where do you remember when Ned confronts her, mm. and she immediately turns and gathers the forces, right? She she is able to kind of hail um, the, mm. the army on her behalf because she still has that kind of power. She doesn't mm. anymore. That's so right. she has to resort to back channels and, and secret meetings and maybe using you know her sexuality to gain the kind of loyalty that she's yeah. not able to gain otherwise. Um,
1: and this is all my headcanon. Like yeah. I, it could be that this is all just a rumor about the kettlebacks, right? Well she so. does
2: admit now it's it's heavily Implied that she's making this up because she doesn't want to admit to a greater sin, but she even names them during her trial. Oh, when she's accused of, you know, uh, adultery, infidelity, fornication, she names the kettle blacks as a way of not naming Jamie,
1: right, which is what right, they want right. her
2: to admit to, as well uh-huh. as to the death of Robert.
1: That's interesting. I forgot about that,
2: huh. and that really haunts Jamie, right? When she actually admits in open court.
1: So we're talking about Jamie. And there's a little bit of there is a one mention of Jamie in this chapter, and it sort of brings us back to the way women are being used in this world. The group of lords and guards narrowly escape the the mob. They get back behind the castle walls, uh, or they get back behind the gate, and they realize Sansa's gone. Mm. Where's the Stark girl? Uh, I think Tyrion says, "Where's the Stark girl?" And immediately he thinks if we if anything happens to her, Jamie is dead.
2: Yeah, I caught that too. Yeah. And
1: This is Tyrion's perspective, right? The value of Sansa's life is absolutely wrapped up in what she might bring in terms of Jamie's freedom or mm-hmm. she she might You know, provide in terms of Jamie's security.
2: That's his first thought.
1: Yeah. So I just thought that was a really interesting thing for him. Like that's his his knee jerk thought. Right. Is not not for Sansa's safety. It's for Jamie's safety.
2: Which is why nobody cares about poor Lawless. Yeah. She has no political. I mean, that's just what's harrowing to me about this chapter, among other things. But this mother crying out. Please, somebody go rescue my daughter. Where is my child? Where is my daughter? Nobody mm-hmm. even answers her. They don't give over that a single over thought. Over and
1: over and over she asks for help. Over right? and
2: over. And she is completely ignored because who cares about Lawless? There's no advantage there. If Lawless dies, who cares?
1: Yeah, you've got a king and you've got knights and you've got lords and they're all in the room and all of the veneer has been stripped. Right, right. And you see that, no, they do not care about the weak. They do not care about the innocent, like they say that they do. Uh, They care about themselves, and they care about the political capital that they're going to lose.
2: Especially if you're a woman, right? Because royalty will alone not protect you. Lawless is part of the upper class, right? She's part of the the lordship, right? She's, Uh She's certainly upper crust. And yet, her life is meaningless because she... Doesn't bring anything to them, and I, you yeah. know, I, I kept thinking, what if Jamie wasn't captive? Would anybody care about Sansa other than maybe the Hound? And right? They really wouldn't I, care if she got killed.
1: Am I reading Lawless correctly that I think that she's referred to as simple-minded at one point?
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: So I'm kind of reading her through a, a disabilities perspective. Yeah. She does have value because she's upper class, right? So she might fetch a marriage, and that would pl- be political capital but i think that tyrion acknowledges at one point he's like what kind of marriage is she going to really fetch mm-hmm. she's probably not going, going to bring much in return you know he's right. he's thinking about her her in very much a a transactional way yes and it's specifically because of her mental disability that she is of diminished value
2: i think there's something to that right it's not just that she isn't um advantageous politically in the way that sansa is but she's also not really marriageable and that's Mm. the only other way you can be useful (laughs) if you're a woman right right? can we marry you to somebody who will strengthen our position are you able to have children and you know again maybe unreliable narrator do we really know that lawless you know has a learning disability or an intellectual disability it's kind of hinted but again that's from the men's point of view Mm -hmm. we don't really get lawless's point of view Um, it's, it's suggested that she's not attractive, right. Which is also something that diminishes your value Mm, in this world. mm -hmm. If you're a woman, um, they make all kinds of jokes about her even prior to this incident where, you know, poor lady Tonda keeps inviting these different Lords to her home as a way of trying to entice them into marrying Wallace. Nobody takes her up on the offer. Um, so it's become kind of a running joke. Um, Yeah. And it's just, it's terribly, terribly sad and tragic what happens to her. And it's its not even just what happens to her, which is bad enough, but it's the complete indifference to what happens to her. And they even make jokes about it later on. Uh, the fact that she was so brutalized just kind of becomes a, a, a running joke. Yeah. Um, it's, huh. it's very, very troubling.
1: So this is a character that's not represented in the show at all, right?
2: She is mentioned in the show.
1: Oh, um okay.
2: Briefly. She's not really a... a you know, a character that you would probably remember, but she is mentioned, I think she's even on screen a couple of times. In fact, doesn't Ron end up marrying her?
1: Oh, <laughs> I forgot about that. To get yes. his
2: castle. Remember Tyrion keeps yeah, promising him a castle. Right. And he finally gets his castle. Don't quote me on that, but I think they bring in Lawless toward kind of no, the end of the series.
1: Think, yeah. The, she, he's with some woman who Tyrion views or Jaime views as sort of a lesser get. Right. right?
2: Like you married her. Well, I got my castle. Uh-huh. Right. Because she stood to inherit at that point.
1: Right. Well, he's planning on killing the older sister. Or whatever. <laughs> That's
2: right. That's right. <laughs> Typical okay. Braun.
1: So oh. I was going to say about Lawless, um, Sansa kind of serves as a proxy because mm-hmm. in the show... Ugh. You know, you see her narrowly avoid Lawless's fate, right? Right,
2: right. Yeah, and I thought about that too.
1: So you see the Hound come in and sort of heroically, you know, save the day. You see Sans in a pretty compromising uh, situation. And this is sort of she becomes the composite for the Lawless plot here. That's right. Um, and again, I think you kind of risk... Using the woman to tell us something about the man's character,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? I mean, you yep. want you want eventually you want people to like the hound, and he was you know initially he was villainous, right? So he he's on an arc, right? Um, and you know you see him bring in Sansa, and he's he's heroic in that way. But what the show decided to do is it decided to use sexual violence to tell that story.
2: As it often did. Right. And when you said Mm -hmm. using women to tell the story about men, I think that's, that's very true of the show. Um, Sometimes the book as well, but very much the show where again, why kill off Roz? Um, Mm, You know, mm. why have these depictions of of sexual violence again? And again, usually it's in the service of forwarding the narrative of a male character, or even a male protagonist. This is a very old trope. You know, we see this again and again throughout history and literature and This is so often, and still today in film and television, this is so often how women are framed. They are not there for their own right. They are there in service of the male, uh, the male character.
1: Mm -hmm. I will say, I think Cersei has the funniest line of this chapter. What is it? All right. So (laughs) uh, Boros and Murren are trying to decide whether (laughs) they can go out the gates and, and, you know, into Uh. the mob again. And they're like, well, if they see our cloaks, we'll be in trouble. (laughs) And so, you know, basically both (laughs) Boros and Murren exchange a look. Should we go? Should we wear our cloaks, your grace? Uh, Sir Boros asks, and she says, go naked for all I care. It might remind the mob that you're men. They're likely to have forgotten after seeing the way you behaved out there on the street. Oh, that's so good. I I thought that was a really funny line. You don't often get to see... Cersei have that kind of line. Normally, those lines are re- reserved for Tyrion. For
2: Tyrion. I know. I thought of but, that, too. Oh, you I, got I, a good I, one in there.
1: Really good. Really well, good.
2: Well, it's also kind of significant, too, right? This this idea of turning things around. So they say, should we wear our cloaks? And that's mm-hmm. such an interesting question, because always before, the cloaks would have commanded respect and fear, <laughs> and the crowd yeah. would have stayed away. Now, if you wear a cloak, yeah. you're going to be torn limb from
1: that's limb. Right.
2: And I think that's such an interesting question turn of events and um the other thing i thought too is they are attacking those two pillars right the crowd is going for those two pillars that Varys keeps referring to in his riddle that he gives mm. to Tyrion about yeah, yeah. why do people stay loyal what what holds their loyalty and so you've got the church and you've got the crown and who do they go after anybody who's wearing a white cloak right who represents the king right and the uh the septon. And they, they do tear him limb from limb.
1: Yeah. Um, he, they, the idea that
2: you've got this waddling, huge, well-fed, right, priest of the church uh-huh. um, just becomes this symbol of everything that is wrong and corrupt about oh, this Oh, he's kingdom. got
1: a crystal crown. Uh,
2: terrible, right? He's, just this lavish he, display. Yeah, he just
1: is sort of like, he's the perfect target mm-hmm. for a starving mob, right? Yes. Uh, and they end up, you know. tearing him limb from limb. I mean, that's, that's like you would a bird.
2: If you're eating a bird, it's a very, you know, food image. The idea of just ripping him apart. Like you would a chicken. And they do show that on screen in the, in the film version and the TV version. We're spared that. Uh, We're just kind of told about it in the book.
1: Yeah. I have a listener of this podcast. I shout out to Walker of dragons. Uh, She's blind. And mm-hmm. so when she watches the show, she is she benefits from a, a sort of a narrator on top of the audio. Uh huh. She, she says that that was the worst scene of the uh, the entire show. Is listening uh, to the the, the the septum get torn apart. Oh,
2: I can't even imagine. I mean, I can kind of imagine, but yes, hearing it narrated to you um would be its own Uh kind of horror right yeah it's it's but again this does allow us to see from Mm. the people's point of view and it does point out these glaring weaknesses even in a character that we love like Tyrion, who is just
1: astonished
2: that this could be happening well again every sign pointed to this you saw them eating rats no wonder right that they should we talk about the baby
1: Yes, this poor woman. She's uh, got a, this, this baby that seems like he's uh, long dead or the, the baby's long dead. And uh, she, she kind of starts the whole thing. She stands in the road defiantly and yells at Joffrey. And Tyrion thinks for a moment that Joffrey might actually run her down with his horse.
2: Isn't that just, I mean, that just jumps out. On the page, right? That he was just going to keep going, even if he had to run this woman down with her dead baby in her arms.
1: So then Sansa whispers in his ear, like, we don't hear what she whispers, but he decides he's going to pull a silver out of his coin purse or whatever. And he sort of flicks it to her as if, like, this will solve your problems. Well, we already know in the previous Tyrion chapter, you can't buy food. Mm Mm-mm. Like a silver coin is valuable, but not in King's Landing because right. you're absolutely not gonna be able to buy bread with it. There's no bread to be had so the the coin hits the corpse of the baby and rolls into the mob, and then sort of the men start to skirmish, and, and the mom
2: just stands there,
1: yes, and well, she drops the kid uh. at that point, she drops the kid to like. Do some. Or she points at Joffrey, and I think it's um, no, she points at Cersei.
2: It's it's Cersei's comment that really gets her, which yes. I think is interesting.
1: Right. It's so, worse
2: than Joffrey's indifference what incu- Cersei says
1: accusing Cersei of incest mm-hmm. in the most you know <laughs> graphic way possible, and this probably indirectly enrages Joffrey. Mm-hmm. Because it calls into question his legitimacy in a very public way.
2: And we know that word of Stannis' letter has spread, obviously, <laughs> because of what they are saying. Yeah. And I think she goes after, I mean, she's she's obviously distraught from the first moment they see her. But what enrages her is the idea that a fellow mother, I think that that was my read of it, that a woman who has had children of her own could be so callous as to say, mm. leave her. She's beyond our help. Let's just go back to our wonderful shiny castle and that's when she snaps i think this poor mother right somehow the queen's Uh voice cut through her ravaged wits and that's when she just screams at her
1: so in in our previous conversation I, i ran down my list of uh of uh female representation yeah and i'll just go through it again so women as political assets or pawns we see that with marcella right um, we see the mother-daughter relationship in a few ways. We see, you know, S- Cersei and, and Marcella, But then, of course, we see this mother and her mm-hmm. her dead baby, right? Yeah. Um, and I was just going to note, on the list that I didn't say before, like, you just said that this is a woman who's sort of the enraged mother who snaps, right? Mm-hmm. That that is another trope. Yeah, child bride. Uh, rumors rumors of a femme fatale. Um, we see a damsel, and dist- we see a few damsels in distress in this chapter. One who's saved and one who's not saved. Um, Tyrion is concerned about his um, his love interest, who's a sex worker, um, victim of a horrific uh, rape. There's, we have women. Mentioned over and over and over in these chapters from Tyrion's perspective, you know, when these these moments of violence happen, you see people's sort of true, true priority of concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Tyrion immediately thinks of Jamie's life. He, and then he thinks of the the wildfire. Which yeah. th- these are legitimate concerns, right? But but no one is no one is listening to Lady Tonda.
2: And I think Martin makes a point. Why else would Lady Tonda say at least three four times, "What about my daughter?" Mm-hmm. Right? He could have just thrown that in there and kind of left it. But the fact that she says it so many times and there is no reaction
1: mm-hmm.
2: from anybody in in that immediate vicinity who even thinks that's a concern at this point, um, really says something, I think. It it really does expose the weaknesses and the flaws of the characters, even characters we like. Mm -hmm. We think, wow, they are really short-sighted.
1: Right. I was thinking in this chapter, I mean, you have the Hound for sure, but what you're really missing in this chapter is a true knight. Mm -hmm. Boy, oh boy, would it be nice to have and Salmi in a situation like this. He would
2: have been first off his horse.
1: He would have jumped into the fray. He would have you know, he he would have acted like a knight ought ought to act, right? Um, and the you know people would probably respect him, and maybe his you know his political value at court would have been, you know, maybe he would have sort of changed the narrative around Joffrey. I don't know, but I really feel his absence in this chapter, right? Yeah, um, definitely, you need more people acting like the Hound, and you Selmy do. would have been the that guy.
2: And I think there's also something to the idea that I keep thinking about Varus's riddle that just really struck me as I read this chapter, because mm. why haven't the people revolted before? And why does this stay at the level of a riot and not a true revolution? And what starts that? I mean, we know what starts it. The people are starving um, and the the Lannisters are a very visible symbol of why they're starving, but I think it's also the idea of we will be willing to suffer as long as there is something that we can latch onto that is honorable about Mm. what we are sacrificing Mm -hmm. for. And I think Selmy filled that role, right? Here's an honorable man who works for this family. Um, That is something that we can say, yes, even though our lives aren't anything like theirs, there is honor there. Um, Ned Stark, right. Represented Mm -hmm. that they had these things. What do they have now?
1: Yeah. And especially we need when they hear about a man in power mm-hmm. and of course there's some sort of hegemonic masculinity attached yes. to this but the, the the hope is that there will be a man in power who will do the right thing.
2: Or even just a legitimate man in power, right? So once they hear these rumors that Joffrey may not even be the rightful heir to the throne, that really becomes the idea of okay, now
1: <laughs> right. this thing
2: that is kind of a symbol of everything that we don't have is now not even legitimate. Right. So why are we supporting this? And if you look at what they're yelling, I thought this was really interesting. Um, so when it, the fighting all breaks out and things are just this this huge now riot, the think about what the crowd is screaming out, right? So they're saying bastard. They're yelling insults at you know Cersei. Um, they're certainly yelling insults at Tyrion, right? Calling him freak and half man. But they're also saying things like Rob, King Rob, the Wolf. Stannis Renly, and of course that ends by saying bread. But I thought maybe that's why this doesn't turn into a true revolution because they don't know who to back. Right? They're not just calling out one name. They don't know who to. Right? Some think maybe it's Rob is going to be our savior, and others are thinking you know no, maybe it's Renly, maybe it's Stannis.
1: Well, whoever it is, it's not Joffrey.
2: (laughs) It's not Joffrey, but they don't have an alternative. Uh huh. Right? So they can't unite behind somebody who yes this person is the one who will end our misery, get rid of this corruption. There really isn't anybody because the kingdom is so divided. Uh-huh. And I think that's what keeps the people from really, you know, gathering together because if they all united they could overturn. Right? But but yeah. they can't at this point. And plus they're starving. It's hard to there, form a revolution yeah. when you're starving.
1: There's a detail that's sort of lost um I think it was uh Sansa chapter a while back and it's that there were men that were at the gate and they were yelling for bread. Mm-hmm. But you get the perspective of one of the, you know, lesser knights around Sansa. And she basically says that Oh, they they thought that they had the right to sup with the king and then Joffrey brags about going out there with his crossbow and putting them down. mm mm-hmm. Well from the communist perspective they were hungry they were demanding food and the boy king came out with a crossbow yeah like that's in my mind it's a brother or a son or a father of someone like that who threw the the dung
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and when he did that it was absolutely not a, a return in kind. But of course for Joff and from Joffrey's perspective, this is like high treason.
2: And compare that to what Marjorie Marjorie will do later. I, I also thought about that. You know, what if when this woman stood in the middle of the street with her baby, what if Cersei had gotten off her horse, mm. gone over to the mother and comforted her? Would yeah. that have held it back? And is that what they were looking for? Right. Just something to show that there is some empathy that you care about us. Not just this complete indifference because when Marjorie comes in, the people love her and yet she's still part of that royalty and yet she's able to tap mm. into this idea that I care about you and I really do care that you're suffering and I really am trying to work on your behalf. She becomes, you know, the people's princess, so to speak.
1: Well, and um, there's political value to that, right?
2: There's such political value to that, but it's like nobody in this world can see that. And the, the, the good that Tyrion does try to do for the people is either not enough or is invisible. Yeah. They don't know it's Tyrion. They don't know he's working behind the scenes and he lets other people take the credit for it. Which That's I think right. is a huge mistake down the road. Um and maybe there's no other alternative because people won't give him credit because he's you know, he's Tyrion, he's the monster.
1: So I liked I really liked the line when he's he's back at the he's back at his <laughs> solar and he's thinking, uh, you know, go get Chaga. And the guy says, Shaga, son of Dolph, is not easy to wake. (laughs) And he's just like, it's so great. It's like the city's on fire. Like, uh, there's been horrific violence. People have died. The high septum has been torn limb from limb. Uh, But the real danger is waking up Shaga, son of (laughs) Dolph. (laughs) happens to Shaga.
2: I can't remember what's that what happens to Shaga? i can't remember where does he end up i he's he's such a integral part yeah. i think of this book and then he kind of fades away does he just leave the kingdom once Tyrion gets arrested or i can't remember what happens okay, to him so he's such a funny character
1: i could be wrong um, i'm sure someone will correct me if i am i think that when he uh gets taken down at the uh, Battle of Blackwater mm-hmm. and has his nose cut off. I think he he's like laid out for a few weeks on the mend. And I think that when Tywin comes back and, and takes over his hand, he dismisses those, right. those guys back to where they came from. Yeah. Um, or maybe they the...
2: leave because they know Tyrion doesn't have power anymore.
1: Right. I mean, I, th- I think that that's the implication is that that they they absolutely um, were loyal to him and once Tywin's back in town he dispatches them. Just an interjection here to correct myself. Tywin does dispatch Shaga along with the others, but Shaga decides to keep the Stone Crows in the King's Wood rather than going back to the Vale. Providing an interesting Resource for Tyrion if ever he decides to return to King's Landing. All right, back to my conversation with Jan. Who knows? Maybe Shaga will return sometime. Oh,
2: I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> One can only hope.
1: Um, uh, all right. Uh, notable introductions in this chapter. Now, we've heard of Tyrek Lannister before, but I wanted to note wow. that um, we hear his nickname for the first time. They call him Wet Nurse. yes. And I think that that is – so I think that that's sort of a way to emasculate him. But in this chapter, we find out he's no more than a boy. In previous chapters, we've heard that he's just recently married. Mm -hmm. So to me, that sort of brought up interesting questions of sort of the border between childhood and adulthood. Yeah. Like if if coming of age is 16, maybe this guy just turned 16 and then just – Got married, so he's sort of at that that borderline between childhood and adulthood.
2: If I remember correctly, again, I could be wrong, but I think he is betrothed to a baby. What? So they are betrothed when his future wife is still... In diapers, essentially, because they want to solidify that that marriage. It's it's so disturbing, right? It's even worse. And I think that's why they call him wet nurse, because they know he's basically betrothed to a baby. I think that's what it is.
1: Yikes. And then he kind
2: of just disappears. And there is, I I honestly cannot remember where I read this. This was a while ago. And I thought this was interesting. Um, So I can't give credit to the person who came up with it. I can just say that this was not me. Mm hmm. But there is a theory out there that Varys was kind of behind all of this and that the fact that Tyrek disappears, right? They never find his body. Mm -hmm, They never mm -hmm. really discover what happened to him. There's a working theory that Varys is the one who got him out of the city, that in fact Varys might have even sparked the riot as a way of getting him out of the city because Tyrek squired for Robert and might have information about how Robert died,
1: oh. which is
2: something Varys can use to his advantage when he tries to depose Joffrey and install Aegon.
1: Interesting.
2: So I'm not usually a conspiracy theorist, but that okay, sounds well, interesting to me. And he's not I there. Would
1: like, I would like to uh, piggyback on your conspiracy.
2: Okay. Please. Not my conspiracy. I just read it. <laughs> but okay. it's interesting. <clears throat> you know, It's interesting.
1: Um, well, now it's yours. <laughs> and <laughs> we're, um, Preston Greenfield dies in this chapter. Yes, he was standing in the hallway when Ned goes in and talks with Robert for the last time. Interesting, and signs you know, Robert dictates the letter. And so interesting that he's in the hallway, you know, one of the few witnesses to Ned's final days. Mm,
2: That's um, really interesting. Is
1: Preston Greenfield, and he ends up dying in the riot. And so, if Varis did incite this, and of course this is all speculation, uh, one of the people who absolutely gets got is a witness to Ned's final final days.
2: There, there might be something to this mm. that that maybe everything surrounds Robert's death and how he died and
1: mm-hmm.
2: the the future of the kingdom. It, it sounds like something Varys would do. Mm-hmm. Um, he's always saying he's putting the interest of you know the people before all else, <laughs> and he's not there when Marcella departs, which is kind of interesting because typically he would be part of the royal you know procession um, as a member right. of the council.
1: Well, and also if all of the Lannisters are wiped out in a battle or something. Uh, Then Varys has got someone waiting in the wings.
2: It's pretty easy at that point, right? To sort of say, here's
1: the rightful heir to the rock.
2: Yeah, you can take out most of the Lannisters right there. Mm -hmm. And and what makes them powerful right there.
1: So these are not notable introductions, but I I note them. Um, We learned that there are two roads named in flea bottom one is called reeking lane and one is called Pisswater water bend uh, <laughs> so just another it's some more uh flavor added to the texture of flea bottom
2: and can uh, i interject yeah. speaking of flea bottom and I, I won't spend a lot of time on this mm-hmm. but again that shows Tyrion's flaw of character where he's talking about the wildfire right? We hope that wildfire doesn't spread, but if it does, let flea bottom burn. I'm paraphrasing yeah. that badly, but it's like, it's fine if flea bottom burns, but God forbid it get close to the castle.
1: Right. right. And think about
2: who lives in flea bottom. Right. It's like that part where they're counting the dead. Nobody bothered to count the dead among the people. That's right. right? Yeah. They just count those who were part of the upper class. Nobody That's cares right. about who died in the mob.
1: The other thing that is used in this chapter is the the word water wagons. Mm. I guess these are sort of like medieval fire trucks.
2: That's what I thought. Yeah. You
1: I, I made me think like, oh, this is probably an invention of Martins, but certainly they had methods to put out fires back in the day. They must have.
2: Right. You know? Yeah. This people in their homes would concern. keep pails of water on their, on their pegs, on their walls. Um, so it's, you know, that's what they did in, Cities before they had fire departments, they just had these water wagons yeah. and they would be rolled out. And you know, that's how you, you quench any kind of disaster.
1: Notable departures. Well, we mentioned that Tyrek is missing, uh, Marcella departs for Dorn. Uh, we mentioned that uh, Preston Greenfield is dead, the High Septon's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, Aaron Santagar has been bludgeoned to death. And then, of course, show differences. we have already noticed that the the lawless plot is, in a a way, given to Sansa.
2: Should we talk maybe about, I mean, maybe we already covered this, but why they hate, hate Tyrion so much? You know, why they are directing most of their ire to him? We hear it from Tyrion's point of view, but. Yeah. Oh, and then we should probably talk about how he slaps Joffrey. And whether that was a huge mistake, right?
1: <laughs> so again, if we think that he about, did it in full view of Cersei,
2: in full view. So again, Tyrion, very calculating, obviously smart, clever, plans things way in advance. But there are these moments where his anger gets the best of him, and it's usually when he's around Joffrey. Uh-huh. And so you're right, in full view of everybody, he just slaps him, kicks him, yells at him, and again, that really does come back to haunt him.
1: Um I think that Tyrion has the most contempt for men in power who he views as less intelligent than he is. Here's the guy who with the the, ver- the most power and he's one of the biggest fools at court. And this just enrages Tyrion. Um and you know, look, I don't condone violence, but Slapping Joffrey is sort of.
2: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely I'm, had it coming. I'm willing to
1: accept a Joffrey slap every now and then. I might even enjoy it. <laughs> um, Given all
2: the atrocities that Joffrey has inflicted on people, <laughs> right?
1: Right. But I, I did. I thought what was most interesting about that was that uh, Cersei does not object. And she doesn't. I think it's an interesting, like I said, sort of like all of the pretenses are laid bare. It shows how much power Tyrion actually has as Hand of the King. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no one there, and maybe the Hound hasn't walked in with with uh, Sansa yet. I don't think, but there's no one in the room that says you should lose a hand for that imp. Right? You know, there's no one that it's willing to say that.
2: Here's what's also interesting. There's kind of a parallel to how they're looking at Tyrion. And I mentioned to you, there's so much foreshadowing. They keep dropping these not-so-subtle hints to Tyrion that you need to take Joffrey out.
1: Yeah, Bronn does. And it
2: kind of reminds me of what people kept telling Ned. You need to take these people out. You can't treat them like a gentleman. Mm-hmm. And nobody would ever call Tyrion a gentleman, I don't think. But I wrote this down. There are so many places where... It's not just Braun. It's Varys saying, oh, Tommen is so sweet. You know, um, wouldn't it be kind of nice you know, mm-hmm. if they had a king like Tommen? I mean, so they're saying this to him as a way, I think, of saying, look, you can put this into motion. And you're really the only one who can put this into motion. Get rid of Joffrey. He's well, horrible. Well, the other
1: parallel here is that Ned's red line that he will not cross is, Killing a child for political benefit,
2: exactly, and, and that's he refuses Tyrion... to do that
1: with Danny, and 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 Tyrion mm-hmm. is being kind of given the same advice, like that boy king is the real problem,
2: and Tyrion knows that, but he just can't bring himself to do anything, and I think it's again that flaw of I've got to put my family first, right? That Joffrey may be terrible, but he's he's my nephew, he's Cersei's son.
1: Well, there... and there's a the taboo. Of slain, you know
2: there is but i think it's that if i act a certain way maybe someday they'll come to love me (laughs) right that maybe i'll actually be a real lannister that they'll accept me into the fold and i'm just struck by the idea that he keeps poking the bear Mm -hmm. right and he's not willing to kill the bear and the bear then devours him so you see this kind of build up from the moment they were at winterfell and he slaps him he's always treated joffrey this way so he either needs to just get rid of Joffrey, right? Or or not poke the bear. But he's kind
1: of oh, got this middle ground. I feel like I need... I'm glad that you said that because I feel like I might need to retract something I said previously. When Cersei kisses Tyrion, I said maybe this is when Cersei decided to have Tyrion killed. But I think we find out later that it was Joffrey that, aimed to have Tyrion killed on the field of battle.
2: I think it was Joffrey. Yeah.
1: So I probably need to retract some of that, but um
2: he thinks it might be Cersei at first. He
1: th- yeah, I and I but wonder But then
2: I think we do find out it's Joffrey, and so that's why I think poking the bear, right? So Joffrey definitely takes his revenge. So what's in up with the kiss?
1: What what's up with the kiss if it's not like a Judas kiss kind of thing? How are you reading that?
2: Well, I think she's just trying to distract him maybe, right? Um she knows that Tyrion wants to be loved. She's hoping that if she treats him sweetly, he won't notice that she's going off to meet with the Kettleblacks. Mm. That was kind of how mm. I read it at first. Um that she actually thinks that that might work on Tyrion. But Tyrion of course is far too clever. He sees right through it. Mm. That if she had just slapped him it would have been less obvious.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, I guess I mean again, one of these things, rumors about women <laughs> Mm -hmm. (laughs) too too easy to adopt um all right well oh my gosh what a it's just a bear of a chapter i mean it is so much is here and it's it's building and building and building and you still don't see it. we could go on
2: for another two hours if we wanted to
1: all right jan um until next time
2: all right thanks anthony always fun to talk about this these books with you
1: you too and now Throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. Well, let's talk about Joffrey. Yeah. Oh, baby. Yeah, thank you. I mean... I needed me one of these. I needed a The guy overview. that threw that cow pie at Joffrey's face, this just, I mean, like, major league aim on you know, this. this is I like mean, this, this guy has probably George won Bush. awards for cow pie throwing. And he probably knew it. They knew it too. They said, look, man, we got to get you a good, we got to get you a good seat. And he's probably like, I don't need a good seat. I just need a good pie. I want to see a biopic specifically for that guy. Like That's right. in the same way that you would see, like, I don't know, like, um, you know, Ford versus Ferrari. Exactly. Yeah. I want to see that guy. And he's kind of befriends the older cow pie thrower who's sort of just <laughs> and his career ended badly, but now he can be a good coach if he can just, you know, get his alcoholism under control. Right. So you're going to have to take lighter on the mead. Don't tell me I do my job give me the boil, throw it look <laughs> i'm good at one thing <laughs> throwing cowboys he's going second. around from village to really? village <laughs> entering tournaments yeah everyone's like i really thought you could be something more than this don't you don't go pro
0: throwing cowboys
1: <laughs> well that could change you could change